have you ever wondered how developers choose realtors to work on their projects? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Stay tuned. This episode of Keeping It Real is brought to you by Real Geeks. How many homes are you going to sell this year? Do you have the right tools? Is your website turning soft leads into interested buyers? Are you spending money on leads that aren't converting? Well, Real Geeks is your solution. Find out why agents across the country choose Real Geeks as their technology partner. Real Geeks was created by an agent for agents. They pride themselves on delivering a sales and marketing solution so that you can easily generate more business. Their agent websites are fast and built for lead conversion with a smooth search experience for your visitors. Real Geeks also includes an easy-to-use agent CRM, so once a lead signs up on your website, you can track their interest and have great follow-up conversations. Real Geeks is loaded with a ton of marketing tools to nurture your leads and increase brand awareness. Visit realgeeks.com forward slash keeping it real pod and find out why realtors come to Real Geeks to generate more business. Again, visit realgeeks.com forward slash keeping it real pod. And now, on to our show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real, the largest podcast made by real estate agents and for real estate agents. My name is DJ Paris. I am your guide and host through the show. And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with top producer Lindsay Barton Barrett. Before we get to Lindsay, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, well, as always, a reminder to me to thank you for listening and supporting our show. Thank you for ch- checking out what our sponsors offer. Thank you for continuing to listen. And as most importantly, thank you for telling a friend. Think of one other realtor that has not heard of our show that could benefit. Maybe somebody that wants to work with developers um, but hasn't quite figured out how to crack that code, which we're going to be talking about today. And send them a link over to our show. They can always go directly to our website, keepingitrealpod.com, or any place you can find podcasts, just search for Keeping It Real and hit that subscribe button. And also, if you'd like to leave us a review, that would be fantastic as well, especially if you're on like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. We read all your reviews and we take your suggestions into account. But anyway, enough about me and other show. Let's get to the main event, my conversation with Lindsay Barton Barrett. Lindsay Barton Barrett from Douglas Elliman in New York City, specifically Brooklyn, although she um, works all of Manhattan. Um, But let me tell you more about Lindsay. Now, veteran New York City broker Lindsay Barton Barrett sets herself apart in a crowded field with an astute advisory approach. She has over two decades of award-winning experience and an unblemished reputation among her fellow agents. She's closed and paused for dramatic effect one billion dollars in total transactions throughout her career and she and her team have sold four of the six most expensive homes in brooklyn's history Uh, lindsay is methodical and prepared and thanks to her former career as a real estate attorney at a prominent new york firm clients can trust that every step of the process is buttoned up from start to finish. And the result of Lindsay's unwavering professionalism isn't only seen in her steady stream of top producer awards and accolades, but also in the legion of fiercely loyal clients and the extensive referral business she's cultivated 
over the years. In addition to assisting buyers and sellers in Manhattan and Brooklyn, with a specialty in brownstone Brooklyn neighborhoods, she's worked directly with the city's leading developers. To learn more about Lindsay, please visit her website, lindsaybartonbarretteam.com, and that's Lindsay with an A-Y, but don't worry, you're not going to have to type it in. We have a link for that right in our show notes, but please do visit it and see what somebody who is at the very, very top of the mountain in real estate, what their website looks like. It's impressive. It's awesome. It's elegant. Anyway, Lindsay, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We are very happy to, Lindsay and I were just talking about uh, some some other things prior to the show, not real estate related. So I am really excited to to learn more about your uh, your path and, and progress uh, and journey through real estate. But I'd love to start all the way at the beginning because I know in your previous career, you were a real estate attorney as well. But how did you get involved in real estate to begin with? I would say it probably goes back a little before that. I gr- I grew up in Seattle, uh, and my my dad was a um, wore lots of hats over the years, but was involved in real estate development and construction a little bit at certain points, and uh, in the hotel business as well. And that just it it always interested me. Because it covers so much ground, it's really personal yet also tangible, and so I was I was intrigued by it from an early age. Honestly, um, the construction part of it, all of that, and then I I went to law school and I I went to Columbia, which is a very um, traditional law school approach. You know, think paper chase. You know, we don't teach you to be a lawyer. We teach you to think like a lawyer. And so it was very theoretical in in certain ways. And there was not a lot of specific sort of, there was not a, there were not a lot of specific classes that related to practice areas necessarily offered including real estate. Um, And maybe there was, and maybe I missed it, but I didn't come out knowing that that was what I wanted to do, but I knew that I was interested in real estate. And so I worked as a corporate attorney briefly. And when I would do diligence on transactions, you know, M&A transactions or something, I still continued to gravitate to the real estate piece of it. So I ended up lateraling between two big firms in Manhattan and moved to another firm where I was in a real estate uh, dedicated practice. And I really, I was, I loved it. I loved the pieces of the transactions, but I didn't love the role that I was playing in transactions. I, I think they're amazing lawyers, but often a lawyer's job is to pinpoint all the potential pitfalls in a transaction instead of focusing on keeping parties together and keeping parties moving forward. And I would work on big transactions where there were both commercial real estate brokers and investment bankers on the deals and just sitting on conference calls or sitting in the room, I would look at what they were doing and think, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be building things and putting deals together and helping really smart people who know what they want to do, get together and do it in, in, in a profitable and, you know, 
they know what they're doing. You know, our clients really knew what they were doing. And so I often felt that the lawyers were just bringing up the same points every single time that had been resolved in the last iteration of this document. And I just didn't, I didn't like the role that I was playing. And it may have been a function of being at a big firm versus being at a smaller firm. But ultimately, I just felt like between not seeing myself as a New York lawyer and the various sort of the the various limitations that that can present in terms of hours worked and all of those things, um, I it just became clear to me that I wanted something different in my role and in my sort of in in my hours and all of that. And, and so I, and then I bought an apartment, um, with a tiny bit of money. I put 5% down, I think on a condo in the East village, in which by the way, which by the way, 5% down on a condo in the East village is still a tremendous down payment. Uh, It was a long time ago, but yes, yes, (laughs) it was. And so I, you know, I, I put 5% down I bought a condo in the East Village and then over the years, you know, and and that was one thing that I really, that has also been a driver for me of what I do is that I do have a very sort of quintessential real estate um, escalation story of I bought the condo in the East Village, turned around and bought a co-op in Cobble Hill, turned around and bought a relatively, you know, for the time and for New York, inexpensive townhouse that ultimately we got renovated. Um, And I sold it this past year for a significant multiple of A, the condo in the East Village in 2000, but also what we bought it for. So it really, and it enabled me to do this job. I was able to take out a home equity line of credit. So I had something to fall back on and so real estate has actually really kind of done for me what I think it does for a lot of people, but what I think a lot of people don't really believe happens anymore. So it, that's sort of my backstory. Yeah. And you, there was really a lot there. I just want to unpack a couple <laughs> of things. N- number one, I want to honor you for the courage to walk away from a legal career that you worked Well, number one, Columbia is not one of the worst law schools in the country. It's actually one of the very top. And that I'm sure that's how you, of course, how you got to New York. Uh, Did you also do your undergraduate in New York as well? Or did you just end up there for law school? I was in upstate New York. I went to Cornell undergrad. Hmm. So I went to, I went to great schools, you know, no complaints here, you know, but it just, it, it, this, it, it was a different path, but it brought me to where I am now. It's uh, was it difficult to walk away from working so hard to pass the bar and, and of course, working in corporate, uh, you know, the corporate law world and then to be an M&A activity, uh, mergers and acquisitions and then say, you know, I really this isn't my I, I'm, I don't want to bill, you know, a thousand hours a year anymore or whatever the uh, whatever lawyers are billing these days. Yeah, uh, I know it's always a staggering, staggering number um, yeah. and sort of trading hours for dollars is, is really what attorneys do, which is why they work so much. Yeah. Um, was that and in New York, especially? Oh, um, yeah. it was hardest for my mom, I would say. <laughs> sure, sure. My mom was not happy, um, about the decision. What are and you doing with your life? <laughs> yes, um, 
and I should be really nice to my mom right now. She's not doing great, but I, she was not happy that I quit my job. Um, it was scary. It was definitely scary. Um, and you know, it's true. You need a, a real sort of, you need something to fall back on. And I, I genuinely got that exclusively by doing a home equity line of credit before I quit my job, taking that money and knowing that I had it and then leaving. And so it was definitely scary. I felt like I had maybe one client, maybe two. They were sort of friends that graciously trusted me with their home purchase or home search. Um, I think one of them ended up buying and one of them didn't. And then otherwise, I really, you know, I think people look at me and go, oh, you had all these like lawyers. Lawyers are very conservative. I have a lot of law school friends who still rent in New York City. And I graduated from law school 23 years ago. So, um, you know, lawyers turned out not to necessarily be my sort of go-to client base either. And when when I left... I knew I didn't really know what I was doing entirely. So I was very nervous to try to tap that um, resource and mess it up. And so I didn't sort of dive back into the law firm world to try to um, get clients. Because when you first become an agent, your job is getting clients, not doing your job. So, yeah, so I... I, um, I was nervous. Obviously, I had a paycheck. And at that point, I had a mortgage. And um, but I was excited about it. And I felt like I had the cushion and I could give it time. And if after six months, it didn't work out, I will move on. But fortunately, it did. It did. I landed in a good place. I had a great support system in terms of my manager and people that I worked with. Um, and I, you know, I, at the time I was engaged and then ultimately, um, my, my husband was supportive and now he's not my husband anymore. And, um, and so, yeah, I I was able to do it. It was scary, but I was really fortunate in kind of, I mean, I don't know, I managed to hit the ground running and then just build from there and get referrals from the people that I, um, I worked with. So how did, so since you didn't tap the, Hey, my friends at the law firm I was at, or, or certainly people who know me in my field, um, as you were saying, cause I was thinking, Oh, this is so brilliant because she's all of her clients will be the attorneys she knows. Yeah. And that turns out, but you, you, usurped my question by saying that is not what happened. So I'm actually really interested in, and yes, I understand, you know, having this previous career that you'd worked so hard for, obviously you can fall back, could have fall back, fell back yeah. onto that uh, very, I'm sure very easily. So that, that is, there's some comfort there, I'm sure. But also, sure. you know, um, I don't know, you know, when you were, when you were, uh, you know, practicing law, I don't know if you were out there securing clients and, and going out and sort of shaking the hands and getting business or if more things were assigned to you, but but now you know. Now you're you're on your own. You're you're in charge of every wearing every hat for the for the business and also learning how to uh, how to actually be a decent realtor. Of course, you have become a, a beyond excellent realtor now. But was um what was it like in those first six months? You know, how did you secure? You had one friend that turned out to to be a be a buyer. Um, you know, the other one didn't, and then it sounded like you know you were you were on your own trying to to drum up business. How did you do that back then? If you don't mind sharing. Um, 
You know, it's funny. I think back and I, in some ways, I still don't totally know. I don't remember. And I will also say, and we get this from agents all over the country, price points in New York are quite high, you know, and the reality was at the time in order to sort of level my um, real estate salary, salary, to where my law firm had been, I think I figured out pretty quickly that I needed to sell something like $8 million. And at the time, you know, maybe, and it probably was a little more, I hate to say this, like that's not that hard to do in New York. Um, And so even in 2002, I guess. um, And so my first sale admittedly was a million dollar sale, which was a big deal. It was a a crappy loft in Tribeca. Um, And then I had a couple, I did what young brokers do. I Worked. Uh, I worked open houses for senior brokers for clients. Um, that was probably my second sale. Was a pretty good sale. Also, I think over a million dollars from somebody that I met at an at an open house. And then I definitely I I worked at Corcoran at the time, and there was a place on the website that you could go in and say, "This is what I'm looking for." And I think that was my third sale, and that was probably a three hundred fifty thousand dollar co op. And it sort of I mean, and then there were a couple of associates who I knew at my law firm who referred me to friends, and so sometimes it wasn't the lawyers, but it was friends of lawyers. And honestly, it just, it, it went from there. And I was fortunate to have one or two listings early on. And that was really where I got buyers. It, and, and in 2002, people buying a $400,000 apartment often didn't, didn't, were not working with brokers. And so there were a lot of direct people. And then it, you know, I don't remember entirely, but it just, it did start to, it starts to snowball. And I remember very early on in my career, a woman in my office was sort of giving this motivational talk and, and talked about, um, it was sort of like a fam- the family tree or like the anatomy of a transaction and, and more so of the referral network. And she talked about how she sold a very inexpensive studio to this actor in New York. And then he introduced her to this person and they introduced her to these two people and how from this one, like $200,000 studio sale, she ended up doing like $15 million in business. So it's really, it's really acknowledging that and recognizing that there's always an opportunity, but there's also a, a good way to do that and a, and sort of an obnoxious way to do that. Um, and so I think it's finding that middle ground, um, and staying in front of people, obviously I'm a huge proponent and it's, this is a little more do as I say, and not as I do, cause I don't always get around to it, but newsletters, I think are probably the single best source of clients because they're also free you know, mailers are expensive, like running an ad in New York magazine is really expensive. 
newsletters are free and you control the content and you control the presentation. And, you know, to this day, anytime we send out a newsletter, we get some response, usually some referral. Yeah. I, I, I used to, I did a, um, a, a, a talk once at a conference, uh, that was something I can't remember the exact title, but it was said, nobody wants to read your newsletter, but that's not the point. And I talked yeah. about how, um, whether or not people read the actual content of the newsletter is, is largely irrelevant, although it's obviously good to have good content. And hopefully yes. some, some of the people that you send it to might actually read some of the articles, but mm -hmm. just this idea from a branding perspective of, Hey, this is what I do. Here's, here's, you know, uh, a little bit of acknowledgement that I know what's going on in the market. I put this together, I'm sending it out. And, you know, it's always good to stay, um, if not front of mind, back of mind from, for, for yeah. your clients. And you're absolutely right. That consistency does in fact work. I, I was thinking about this, like I, um, you know, I know you work with a lot of new, well, you work with developers, you work with a lot of new mm -hmm. developments. I actually was just thinking, um, so I, I purchased in a new development a couple, a uh, year and a half ago. And so I've been there a year and yeah, year and a half, a little bit more than a year and a half. And I have not received any communication from any other realtors. Um, you know, usually you start getting postcards and, and things. And I'm, I understand that on, on the statistical side, I am people who, purchased it on my building probably aren't going to purchase for the next or, or sell for the next, I don't know, five years, you know, who knows, seven years, whatever it is. So yeah. I get it. There, there's a long-term play here if you want to start introducing, but you know, not one, there's 45,000 realtors in the Chicagoland area, not one postcard from anyone going, Hey, congrats on your new purchase. Um, by the way, you know, I would love to, to just learn more about you. I'm going to keep you updated on, you know, what's mm -hmm. going on with your place. Again, tons of opportunity, right. To like build relationships. And that's what you do really, really well is, is build relationships. You were talking about this, how, how, you know, your friend, one, one transaction, you know, for one person can lead to $15 million in production over time. Um, yeah. that is clearly the way that you've done it. But I, I wanted to ask you, cause you said something that I thought was very uh, interesting. You said there's an obnoxious way to sort of build those relationships. Um, and then there's a way that, that is, you know, more you know, gentle and, and, and non-invasive. And do you mind yeah. sharing a little bit about how you think about, you know, maybe asking for a referral, or maybe you don't ask, maybe you demonstrate value in a different way, but how do you do it in a way that's most comfortable for you? I want to pause for a moment to talk about our episode sponsor, our one of my favorite companies out there, Follow Up Boss. Now, after interviewing hundreds of top realtors in the country for this podcast, do you know which CRM is used by more than any other by our guests? Of course, it is Follow Up Boss. And let's face it, following up is the key to taking your business to the next level. Follow Up Boss will help you drive more leads in less time and with less effort. Do not take my word for it. Robert Slack, who runs the number one team in the U.S., uses Follow-Up Boss, and he has built a $1.5 billion business in just six years. Follow-Up Boss integrates with over 250 systems, so you can keep your current tools and lead sources. Also, the best part, they have seven-day-a-week support, so you'll get the help that you need when you need it. And get this, Follow-Up Boss is so sure that you're going to love their CRM that for a limited time, they're offering Keeping It Real listeners a 30-day free trial, which is twice as much time as they give everyone else. And oh, 
yeah, no credit card required. So you can try it risk-free, but only if you use this special link. Visit followupboss.com forward slash real. That's followupboss.com forward slash real for your free 30-day trial. Follow up like a boss with Follow Up Boss. And now back to our episode. I definitely am one of those people who is, I have a hard time asking for things, honestly. I don't know, they're probably friends of mine who might say that's not true, but um, I, you know, I don't like to be pushy and I don't like to be salesy. I remember my mom was not happy when I left my job and my dad was like, it said to me, you know, you're really, you really don't have a salesman's personality. And, you know, what I said to him is, I don't feel like I'm going into sales. I'm not chasing people down on the street and saying, do you want to buy an apartment? I'm, I'm fulfilling the need that they already have. They're, they're choosing to at least explore the possibility. And I'm working in an advisory capacity. And I view myself as being a professional and not a salesperson. So I think that goes across the board, whether it's how you're trying to sell a property or how you're trying to sell yourself as a broker is by and large, I try to be as valuable as possible to my clients so that of course they'll refer me. Um, I certainly have sort of I guess the typical call to action kind of things in my newsletter of, you know, if anybody, if you're looking, if anybody's considering a real estate purchase, if you need any advice, call us. But beyond that, we don't really. Um, Every once in a while, you know, if I am talking to somebody I know really well, um, I, I will say something explicitly along the lines of, hey, you know, we always really appreciate referrals. And of course, when I when I get one, I try very hard to to call that person right away. And I think it's important. And, you know, this is a lesson I've learned from other people, but I think it's I, I I've learned it for myself too. A referral is not about the sale, it's about the referral. And right. so you can't wait until somebody buys and they might not, but you want to, re- you want to encourage people to refer you business. So even if they refer you a crappy client, you can even call and say, I really appreciate the referral. Just so you know, like that's not really necessarily the type of business that I do. I can find somebody to refer them to, but if you're ever talking to someone like this is a great referral for me. Um, well, and, and isn't, yeah. isn't that what attorneys do as well? Because attorneys get these calls all the time because people think, oh, attorneys just can do everything and, and every specialty. Yeah. And so this, this is very much often what happens with attorneys where they're like, oh, I don't do that, but my buddy does. And you know mm-hmm. what? And nobody says to the attorney who who isn't able to service that client, well, gosh, I don't even know why I called you. You can't handle yeah. that. No. The person goes, hey, you know what? I'm a specialist in this, but my buddy does this. I'm going to send yeah. you over to him or her. And and so it really shouldn't work any differently with, with realtors. I, I think you're right. There may be this fear of like, oh, now they're not going to refer me anyone else because I wasn't able to help this person. Mm-hmm. But I think as long as you're providing value, like you said, and just passing it off to somebody who does do that, um, that's I don't see any negative to that at all. Yeah. And that's exactly it. You want people to recognize you as their go-to for anything real estate. 
And so I think to that end, it's also really important to have a great referral network yourself. And so if you're always getting referral, you know, if people are always calling you who say, okay, well, I'm looking at Park Slope, but I'm also looking at Montclair, New Jersey, it's important to have someone in Montclair, New Jersey. And so, you know, if, if you're, if you don't do rentals, you need to have a really good rental broker. I say this again, do as I say, not as I do, because I've, I've searched for that and, and it's always a challenge um, because that market's also changing quickly. And so sometimes your best rental brokers end up deciding they also don't want to do rentals, but um, I think it's important to have a great referral network. You know, there's the obvious ones. You got to have a great lawyer, got to have a great mortgage broker or several of each, but you also need great referral um, brokers in other uh, markets that you might cross over with. Yeah. And and, and again, that's how attorney, attorneys are very yeah. good at this, right? They, I yeah. think attorneys are almost better at referrals than any other profession I'm aware of. I mean, they just see, I always ask attorneys, like, how do you get business? And they're like, well, I get a lot of referrals from these different channels. And it is, it seems like so much more of a mystery on how to do it as a realtor. Um, so I imagine with that background, you probably just were naturally more understanding of, I do this and I have this very specific focus because that's where I can provide them the most amount of value. And I need to have this other almost team in place for anything that's outside of those, those really strict boundaries, because I'm just not going to be as effective as, you know, the person down the street who that's what they do. Um, so that makes, that makes so much sense. We talk about that a lot on the show, but I think it can't probably be talked about enough. This idea of having this really strong net, you know, referral network, um, which hopefully also is two way that comes yeah, exactly. back to you. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask about, so, you know, you being in New York during, of course, the pandemic and and seeing, you know, a lot of people sort of leaving the city because, of course, uh, you know, New York had had a lot of publicity around, you know, COVID and, yeah. and the effects that it had. You guys were basically sort of the epicenter of the United States, you know, part of, of COVID, at least at the beginning. And you mm -hmm. saw a lot of uncertainty around the city. It seems like that's changed. And so it seems like people are are returning more, uh, more so to the city. And, and also to, you know, places like Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn's always been super cool and awesome. And I imagine, or it hasn't always been, but it's certainly over the last 20, 30 years, it's really changed. Um, but um, was that, was that, uh, were you concerned at all during that time that, oh, my business might radically shift based on, you know, these sort of uncontrollable, um, you know, sort of things going on in the world? Not for long. Um, I definitely had that moment of, just absolute panic that made no sense. You know, I remember very distinctly walking along um, the reservoir upstate with my kids because we spent much of COVID at a at our house upstate, like many New Yorkers did, um, near Woodstock. And I remember a moment of panic of what am I gonna do? And then really over the course of the next couple of weeks, I was really focused on trying to get the deals done that were kind of hanging in the balance. Um, but it also really highlighted to me that real estate, the selling residential real estate is a, everyone will always need to buy and sell. 
you know, and there, I, I think Barbara Corcoran at some point said, you know, it's always a broker's market, whether it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. If you're a, a good broker, you should be selling because things are selling. That being said, I, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of talk about all of this because the market has changed. And I was having a conversation with someone for some sort of pretty well-known publication and, and it, we were having a really int- interesting conversation. And the reality is what you do need for a market is buyers. And if you have no buyers, you have no market. And so that was certainly a difficult, you know, and, and the market self-correct. So if you don't have buyers at some point, you're going to drop the price low enough where you have buyers. But um, that was certainly a fear at some point, but I, I don't know if I'm just a little bit deep down, even though I don't seem like it necessarily a little bit of a Pollyanna that I believe that things are going to work out. But I also, I've lived in New York for 27 years, 25 years, excuse me. And New York is unlike you know, I mean, New York is unlike any city, as is Chicago, as is, you know, all of these sort of world capitals are unique and they're desirable. You know, they have so much to offer. And I will also say that I had a very selfish moment of going, people are really going to want to live in townhouses now. And that was absolutely the case. So yeah, there were certainly concerns. There's There are always concerns as things change dramatically, like we're going through right now, frankly, you know, uncertainty is difficult in any market. But I knew even if people left, people would come to take their places. And I mean, we've already seen people who left during COVID come back. So it, uh, you know, so, so no, I was not very worried for very long. Um, I knew that there would be a lot of adaptations and there was a lot of talk about selling, you know, houses via FaceTime and this and that. And I didn't have, I didn't think that was going to last long either. And I think that's largely the case. I mean, we've certainly, we've done a few deals, um, side unseen, um, not many, certainly people who've done like a first tour FaceTime, but you know, it's a big purchase and it's, it's personal. And I just, I didn't think that there was going to be much duration of people buying from videos and stuff. Yeah. And that seems to have kind of gone away at this point. Although what's nice is for people that are uh, able to do that and willing to do that, it's just much more normalized now. So even though we're back to being in person, uh, hopefully uh, that will not change, although who knows, Um, but at least that 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 has been normalized, you know, throughout the last several years. So you do have people that are willing, more willing to explore virtual conversations. Um, so it's a nice option that isn't bizarre or weird or, yeah. you know, it's just been normalized. So I suspect that's, that's been good for, for agents who do have some clients who maybe are like, you know what, let's just, just, just show up with the FaceTime and let's, let's mm-hmm. walk through it virtually. Um, I had a question, uh, two, two questions, because you work with a lot of developers and 
so one of the, it's funny when, whenever we do episodes, of course, most of the brokers we, we have on the show, or, and I say broker again, synonymous here where I'm from with realtors. So if I say broker, not everyone in the country doesn't always know what that means. We'll just please excuse my language. Well, that will be realtor. But anyway, um, a lot of the, a lot of the realtors we have on the show are top producers. Almost all of them are. And a lot of them work in the luxury market. And that's for people who don't work in the luxury market. You know, that's oftentimes something they feel like they should aspire to is to being a luxury broker. Um, but also developers, that's the other one that people get really excited about because it's seen as this, I've, I've arrived if developers are now choosing me to represent uh, their, you know, their, their developments. And of course, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a certain truth to that. Um, how did you start to get involved with developers? What was it that allowed you to win over their trust in their business? Um, admittedly, in part, I, um, I started a development company <laughs> with my ex-husband. So my ex-husband was an architect And I was, you know, I was, when we, we talked about it on our first date, it was very pathetic. Um, So he was an architect and I was a real estate lawyer and we were both really interested in development. And, um, and we started a, uh, a real estate development company and did a bunch of condo projects in the area of Brooklyn, where we lived at the time. And that really helped me get my foot in the door. And you know, I was much more in that world of other developers. And so I think people, other developers saw that I really understood. And often there is a, there isn't always a, an alignment of what the broker wants and what the developer wants in terms of incentive structure. I mean, as a broker, you're happy for them to spend, you know, no limit of money on advertising because it's going to help bring people in. And of course, yeah, you're going to be able to sell things for higher prices if you have more more demand for the product and all of those things, but it's not necessarily one-to-one. And, but if you're also invested in just the, the ultimate success of the project and the absolute success of the project, you're going to have a different perspective. And so I think that that certainly was important. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to jump in for a second and say like, what you just said is actually quite profound because developers want people who understand what the pain points of a developer are, which of course, yeah. yes, getting, getting the property sold. Yes. Obviously that's why they're hiring you, but for the agent to say, or to at least have the mindset of, I don't mm-hmm. want, I'm not going to keep coming to you, Mr. Developer, for more ad dollars, or I don't want to keep investing myself as the agent into, you know, more than I, I think is reasonable, but understanding that that it is a business and, and running it like a business. And it goes beyond just you selling the property, having an understanding of what developers deal with, since you've done that, it was obviously part of your, your family history as well, I think gives you a tremendous advantage when meeting with developers. You're like, I, I grew up with this, number one. Yeah. I, I, I know it. I've been on on all sides of it, and I've also run my own development company. Which, which again, it's it's funny. I I hope that our audience is really inspired by that because 
anyone listening can de- can build their own development company as well. And and if you don't, if your if your husband uh, uh, isn't an architect, which of course most most of our listeners don't have that in their immediate family, go out and find an architect. There are millions of them who absolutely are probably waiting for somebody to partner up with. So it is it is something that again is a really smart way to sort of get involved with developers because then you get to say when you're pitching to other developers, oh, I do this also, by the way, um, maybe on a smaller scale or maybe on a, di- yeah. a different you know, sector, but this is what I know what you, what you deal with and I want to help mm-hmm. you. Um, and I imagine that's a very powerful pitch. Yeah, I, th- I certainly think it is, but I also do, you know, I think that one thing I also believe strongly about being an agent or being a broker or a realtor, it's a job. And so I think it's, it's important not to sort of look at it as something where you're also going to be doing this, also going to be doing this. Like, I think coming to developers, I think, you know, I think one of the best ways to sort of digest that is to make sure that you do understand that person's business, just like a, you know, when you have a residential client who's looking for a new home, knowing that they have family overseas who comes to stay all the time and they need a separate place for that person to stay that feels a little separate and they've got space and they've got their own little kitchen. Like that, if you don't know that, you're going to show people the wrong thing. And so I think understanding what, how it works as a developer and the profit structure and knowing that if you only suggest the most expensive stager, they may feel like you don't have their interests at heart and you don't even understand what their business is. And so I think it's really important to communicate that you will protect them by only coming to them with things that you have evaluated yourself and say, okay, the, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze or whatever. Like we're going to spend $20,000 on this campaign, but I think ultimately it's going to translate into a 2% increase in sale prices, which is $200,000. So you know, I think it's acknowledging that that's their money and you're not just going to spend their money because it's going to produce better materials or, you know. So I, I think that's the probably the most important part is just this understanding your client. Yeah, I agree. Um, yes. And, and again, that's probably also the skills you developed as an attorney. It's probably incredibly helpful for how important it is to get a good sense of what the client wants and needs so that mm-hmm. you know you can continue working for them in, in a way that that is most effective for them. Um, question about sort of today's market. So we we know, of course, uh, everyone listening to the show knows rates have changed, uh, doubled in, in a lot of cases, uh, maybe even more than doubled at this point. Yeah. Um, seems to change almost daily. And I, I don't know what it's at today, but but it certainly has, has gone up. So rates are, are double what, what they were at the lowest point, which I don't think is maybe the best uh, metric to, to measure against, but it's what people know because it was yeah. so prominently featured in news and social media, how rates were so low. And now people maybe feel, oh, I missed out, except of course what they 
maybe don't always know is there were lots and lots of buyers and place prices were inflated and maybe it's not so different now even though rates have, have changed but um but there just may be a lot more sentiment out there that now's not the time to to make any big moves um so understanding that those are some hurdles that realtors are, are dealing with all over the country um how have you been dealing with that? How have you been educating your clients and just keeping your business going despite the fact that there probably are fewer buyers in the market at this point? I think that's absolutely true. There definitely are fewer buyers and fewer real buyers because even if people, I mean, and it's, it's really hard, even if people feel like real buyers, if you were looking a month ago and then you went on vacation or something and came back and then you find something and then you get your pre-approval updated. You know, I think we're seeing that a lot. We're seeing more deals fall apart. And I think that's probably part of it is that people are not internalizing or properly sort of analyzing what these rate changes mean. But I will say, I think it's really important to recognize that rates are fluid and they go up, but they are very likely to come down again. And so if, you know, I, I've had this conversation with a few clients recently, and many of whom said, you know, that's true. I really hadn't thought about it that way. And of course, when rates are super low, you're really excited because you can lock in this rate for a long time and you know what your monthly outlay is going to be. But when rates are high, it's important to remember it doesn't have to stay like that forever. Um, and so, you know, real estate is a long-term play almost no matter what. And when you're buying a home, maybe life does change and you end up selling it in three years. But, you know, I, I, for most of my clients, any clients who are not investors, you know, my, my recommendation to them is you can't really have any expectation of appreciation unless you plan to stay in this home for at least probably five years. You never know. And, and you need to have flexibility on that because if the market's in the toilet in five years, you want to be able to hang on to it for another two or, or, you know, move on. But it it's a long-term play. And because rates we have seen have changed so quickly, so dramatically, we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not going to promise anybody that rates are going to go back down to, you know, 3% for a 30 year fixed, but they, I can tell people with some degree of confidence that I certainly think they'll go down again in a meaningful way over the course of the next two to three years. So I think it is an opportunity. I think that that will take some time because sellers are having a hard time adjusting. Sure. Um so that's I can't get, I can't get twice the listing price uh pay, you know anymore. Yeah. Or I can't get exactly the same price that they got down the street. Right. Um and and then you know we work in we work in different markets we work across a, a lot of price points and for new york and you know i i certainly recognize that and um it's one thing we are seeing is the very high end <clears throat> brooklyn in particular turnkey townhouse market is stable um there aren't really many rental op 
alternatives. If you want a really nice townhouse in Brooklyn Heights, there's not one to rent. So you may still end up in the, in the sale market. Um, you know, there's a lot of liquidity at that price point. And so we are really having a hard time getting a meeting of the minds um, at that price point. But things are staying pretty stable. Um, you know, at lower price points, people are a little bit more understanding that interest rates have really made a big hit. And so, you know, I think I'm sure everyone's going through the same thing. It's educating your sellers, educating your buyers, keeping buyers spirits elevated that what they're doing is good for the good for their themselves and their family long-term. I think it seems like so many people and it's so, um, because it oftentimes is a buyer's, uh, you know, largest asset or one of their largest assets. Um, it becomes this idea that it, it, this primary residence is an investment. And I think the realtors could, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, could really do their clients a favor by readjusting that expectation that number one, yes. Okay. Maybe technically it's an investment, but it's, you have to live somewhere. Right. And mm-hmm. so even if it does go up by you know, two times what you paid for it, odds are you're not downsizing on your next home. That's not usually the sort of human nature psychology piece of it is it's like, well, I'm just going to bank this extra 500 grand I just made. Usually it's like, now we can upgrade to a higher price point property. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe once somebody hits retirement age, that changes and they downsize. And then, yeah, they can bank some of that money. That's not usually what most people do with their profit from their primary residence. At least that's not been my experience with anybody I know. Um, Maybe, maybe the most savvy people would do that, but most of us, you know, we don't buy a 20 inch TV when we're, you know, a teenager and that's all we can afford. And then when we're 40, we go, you know, let's go back to a 20 inch TV, right? It goes, no, I want the 65 inch or the 80 inch or whatever. Um, we keep going bigger and bigger until we realize maybe things are too big. But, but the point is, is, is it's my, my sister did this. She, her place almost doubled in value in the West village. Um, she was on Barrow, which is like beyond amazing street. You, you, I'm sure you know it. And yes. then, you know, fifth floor walk up, no air condition, uh, you know, a little tiny unit, uh, n- no amenities really. Uh, it was a co-op and, um, fifth floor walk up. And it was like 475 square feet, one bedroom that includes a one bedroom. It was just this little tiny, nothing, um, place, but it was, it was lovely, but it was just tiny and everything was miniature and stuff. And, um, and then she, she, she took that money and then, uh, you know, she goes, well, now I can't live in my neighborhood anymore because even though her, she had made all this money, she had actually priced herself out of her actual yeah. street. And so she ended up moving to Queens with with her fiance at the time and it ended up working out for them. But, but again, people don't usually go from a 475 square foot, you know, co-op to, uh, well, you know, maybe I'll just stay at 475 square feet. Yeah. Right. She, it, so this idea that people see their primary home as an investment, I think can, um, can be very problematic. And, and it's, it's, I think it's just not an investment maybe, um, unless it is, unless it is something that generates income or that, you know, uh, you're going to m- move to an investment property at some point, but, but this idea of that uh, realtors can, can really re-educate their clients about this, this, let's not think of this as an investment as much as a lifestyle and, and quality of life sort of situation. Um, I think that would, I think that would quell, and also dating the rate, 
on the lending side, marrying the home. You know, that's that expression yeah. that that it, it's it's sort of a cutesy expression that people say, but it's a good expression because I think it's exactly yeah. right. I mean, rates do change, people refinance, and you know, we're not in the double digits, right? It's not the early uh, early eight, late seventies, early eighties anymore. Which yeah. that was a really difficult times. I can't even imagine what it's like to try to be a buyer's agent when it's, you know, 12% rates, but people were doing it then too. So um, anyway, I've gone on enough of a rant about that, but I I really appreciate your thoughts about it because um, I think, you know, for anyone out there who's, who's going, gosh, the buyers just aren't into it. They feel like they're getting ripped off at this point time to re-educate yourself as the agent about how to have that conversation to say, you know what, even if you would have tried to buy a place two years ago, you would have, here's what you probably would have paid over asking for what you're looking for. I'm going to show you evidence that would have suggested that, you know, maybe it wasn't such a great time for you, or maybe it can still be a good time today. And we can refinance in a couple of years if, if need be. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. I will get off no, my, okay. my little soapboxy <laughs> rant there. But um, but I want I want agents to not be so uh so disheartened during this time. And you have a billion dollar business that you've built, and that is beyond impressive. I want to ask sort of my last question, which is: so you talked about newsletters, we talked about client relationships, and how one can lead to one plus one. You know, can lead to yeah. to dozens and dozens yeah. and dozens. Um. What advice do you have for agents who want to uh, further develop those those relationships, make those more intimate, make those more important, really demonstrate value so that in between sales, maybe those people, again, you mentioned newsletters, keep your name in front of them, but what mm-hmm. else are you doing just so that the your clients don't forget about you or that they keep thinking about you when they're talking to other other people who might need your services? I am not as good at that as I should be, quite honestly, and in many ways, because I've been fortunate in in building these relationships that largely feed themselves. I mean, and the New York market, it is a unique thing. I know that it has remained strong in times when others have not been, I think, um, this COVID experience was really unique in that it was one of the few times that we've seen, uh, you know, somebody selling in New York and buying somewhere else and they don't come out ahead and not necessarily in actual like dollars in your pocket, but in terms of the strength of the market that you know that you're getting top dollar in New York and you know that you're buying at a little bit of a discount wherever you may be going. And that really got flipped on its head. And that was a big adjustment. Um, But it was also a really interesting illustration of what drives people and people were buying because they wanted to move. And so they were able to just say, look, this is what's right for me. This is what I want. And I'm going to do it. And this is the price. This is the price that it is today. And so I think that it's important for people to remember that, 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 and this touches on what you were saying. It's you're doing this for yourself and for your future self and for your family. And, you know, you've got to make the choice that's right for you. That is somewhat untethered from is, is this the right investment? And so, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to go back one second, a little bit about that, because I totally understand and agree with you that it is not exclusively an investment. But I think another way to look at that, and 
I've spoken to clients a number of times is it is a lifetime investment. And very rarely are people selling and then renting unless it's sort of a temporary either move for one reason or another, a renovation, a relocation, um, or whatever, maybe, you know, a strategic decision. But people are generally staying in the market. So, yeah. you know, I we get so many people who say, I can't lose money on this house. Well, if you're selling at a discount, whatever you're buying in all likelihood is also at that same discount. It's a lifetime. And so in your, you know, lifetime portfolio of real estate holdings, you're probably going to come out ahead of the stock market. Historically, that is what has happened. And so I think don't like don't get so fixated on every one transaction because that's not what it is. It's a it's a lifetime of owning your home. And there are ways to leverage that. If you have a rental unit, you can do a 1031 exchange and you feel like genius. You know, there's a lot of different ways to leverage real estate ownership. And so I think that's important to, to focus on also. And frankly, like you still do get that primary um, residence interest deduction. So I think that's something we should really be focusing on right now too, because if you're paying more, you're getting a much larger deduction. So that's something. Um, that's my that's my sort of callback to the last one. No, I, I appreciate that. And I I, I want to just wrap up because you have mm-hmm. been, this has been so valuable to our audience. I, I always like, you know, when I first started this, this show all these years ago, it was like, oh, all of these top producers are going to have all of these very specific strategies and tips that the rest of us don't know about. What I've learned after 400 episodes is that is rarely the case that there's like this little secret magic formula that, you know, we're going to unearth on this show. And, mm-hmm. and, and it hasn't happened yet, but, but maybe, maybe in the next 400 episodes, somebody will, will have that. But the reality of it is it, it isn't much about that at all. Um, and, and it's more about consistency and, and yeah. discipline and also just understanding how people think who are really at the top of the mountain in as a realtor. And, and so I think you've given us today, you've given us some great strategies, but on top of that, just this idea of like, here's how I think about things. Here's how I keep going. Because at the end of the day, sort of, I think mindset, and again, that word is, I think, really overused and it sort of doesn't even mean a whole lot anymore. But this idea of just the beliefs and the strategies that somebody has that, you know, like you were saying, Barbara Corcoran saying, there's always there's always buyers and sellers. There's just always a broker's market. Yeah. Um, it's about making sure that that you can uh, pivot and adjust to those changes. Um, and I also want to mention that Lindsay is uh, currently looking for one additional team member. Now, this is a billion dollar team. So she doesn't, uh, of course, take any and all agents that reach out to her. And in fact, you'd have to probably be somebody that is really impressive Um and she did not say that to me. I'm saying it on her <laughs> behalf because I know that she's going to expect somebody who is who is really somebody dynamic and special. But if you are a realtor in the um, you know the New York market, um, specifically Brooklyn, Manhattan, you know anywhere there that you think you could be of value and you could be a, a valued member of her team, um, reach out to her. You know the best way to do that just go to her website. You can submit some information. And also, by the way, for everyone else who's listening who's a realtor, um, whether you're in New York or elsewhere in the country, if you have clients that are moving to the city, moving to Brooklyn, moving to 
other places in the New York metro area, and you're looking for a top producer to send them to, well, obviously Lindsay is a great choice. Uh, she's at an amazing firm. Um, I, we've, we've interviewed tons of people from Doug Sullivan over the years, and they're always just really best of the best. Um, obviously, Doug Sullivan's doing something right in their hiring. But also, um, if you are looking for a broker to refer to, Lindsay would love the opportunity to connect with you. Lindsay, what, what is the best way another agent can reach out to you? Um, website, definitely. And we have a team email, um, which we did by necessity. I, you know, over the years, sort of figured out some of the things and uh, the everyone responding to the same email at once um, and, and sometimes responding from my email. And then I also respond, gave rise to the LBB team email. <laughs> so LBB team at element.com is probably the best way. And we'll, we'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. So if you are an agent that wants to partner with Lindsay with referrals, or maybe you're looking to explore being on a team yourself and you live in that area, reach out to Lindsay to see if you might be a good fit for her. Um, and by the way, she's not always hiring like most real estate firms, like <laughs> our firm, we're always hiring. So you can always reach out to me if you want to join our company in Chicago. But Lindsay is not that that kind of agent and doesn't have that kind of team. It's a very exclusive, small team that she can really manage, uh, you know, work with and make sure that, you know, all of her team members are having success. So definitely reach out to her if you uh, think that would be a good fit. Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the show. We had, I had such fun time with you. Um, you really, uh, really appreciate how busy you are and, and really just, again, walking away from a really, really sort of something that you would work so hard for and not walked away entirely, but yeah. walked away from that being your profession and, and your source of income is, is truly, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, again, this courageous, um, uh, quality that you have, I think is, is, is amazing. And so I hope it's inspiring to our, our audience. And, um, also we want to thank Lindsay, uh, for her time. We know how busy she is. And so on behalf of the audience, we, we say thank you to you. And also on behalf of Lindsay and myself, we want to thank the audience for, for not only, um, sticking around throughout the whole episode, um, but also hopefully finding value here. And we just ask that you do one thing, which is tell a friend, think of one other realtor that needs to hear this, uh, this conversation that we just had and send them a link to our websites, keeping it real pod.com. Um, we'll have that link to that in the show notes as well, but please tell us other realtors about our show. Um, it's how we've grown uh, over the last uh, five years now. And so we want to continue to grow and reach more and more realtors. So um, anyway, on behalf of everyone, Lindsay, thank you. And we will see everybody on the next episode. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you.